everybody spends a lot of time in, in debate prep. That's part of running for president. Even you did as a new candidate, right? Uh, and so you get used to what uh, what might come up and you think about what's the smartest way to say it or the, you know, the suavest way to say it. Uh, and for me as a political reporter, what I'm always interested in is how do people respond when you throw a question at them that they're not expecting at all? Like, how do you see the thought process? Yes, I think that's one reason why people were attracted to me in my campaign is they like the process. They liked it. And the fact that half the time I actually was answering with an original thought because I had not figured out what the uh, politically honed answer was. <laughs> right. And no, I mean, I, I mean, I do think that that's what it was. I think that you see that people who were, you know, all everybody always spends a lot of time in debate prep and it's so obvious almost all the time to the reporters and to the voters uh, that these are the prepared responses. I think your campaign and Buttigieg's campaign are the ones that were most successful in doing things in a very different way from what anybody ever would have thought possible. Welcome back to Yang Speaks. This is your co-host, Zach Grauman, and a happy 4th of July to everyone listening. Hope you're enjoying some time with family and friends. Before we introduce our speaker, our guest speaker today, Edward Isaac Dover is joining, one of my favorite reporters. For that, a couple housekeeping updates for y'all just as we head into the summer. So what's going to happen this fall we have some big things planned for Yank Speaks. Now, I hate when people say there's big things coming and then the big thing comes is not that big. And so maybe it's not that big in your eyes. But I'm pretty excited about what we're doing this fall. But in the meantime, we've, I want to give you all the summer plan. What's going to happen? Andrew's going to be hosting an episode every Monday as usual. You will not miss Andrew Yang on Mondays. It will be more reactive to current events and also having some awesome guests sort of what you've been used to before he was running for mayor, which is exciting. And on Thursdays, Carly Riley will be joining us to basically give our, her takes on the week because y'all seem to love her, uh, both in terms of a number of you downloading and a number of you interacting with her takes. So we're going to have her on this summer before we launch our um, kind of our bigger stuff uh, that we're working on. But it's exciting to have her. So she'll be on with me every Thursday and Yang will be doing his Mondays. So Mondays and Thursdays on Yang Speaks. That doesn't change, but the content will. I think you guys are going to love both of it. We're going to try and give a good flavor for every type of episode. You don't want to miss it. And right now, Edward Isaac Dover, one of my favorite, basically we keep bringing our favorite journalists from the presidential race onto this podcast. Edward is one of the best in the biz. Was He grew up covering and kind of cut his teeth covering New York City politics. And he's just wrote a book on the 2020 election, which Andrew and many of the candidates are featured prominently. He's a great guy. He's hilarious and has a fun perspective. We love the guy. Edward Isaac Dover joins Yang Speaks right now. It is my pleasure to welcome to Yang Speaks, one of the finest political journalists in all the land, author of the new book, Battle for the Soul, Isaac Dover. Isaac, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. I, this is a, a historic moment for the promotion of the book because this is the first time that somebody who's a main figure in the book uh, has invited me onto his podcast. So I appreciate it. <laughs> Isaac, calling me a main figure is, <laughs> is, is slightly misleading, having read the book. This book could have used more Andrew. Though <laughs> 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 no, no, for people who like and support me, there I do show up. I do show up. So though uh, no, no, calling me a lead figure possibly uh, a bit. Much. I mean, I, I guess it's fair to say that in the, in the book is 500 pages and I was with um, significant cutting that we did uh, because we needed to make wow. space for the, it was uh, the final draft of the, uh, the final version of the first draft was supposed to be submitted on January 4th. Uh, and then we had to make some changes to the book with things that happened over the course of that week. Um, I sent a, an email to my book editor the morning of January 4th, that Monday and I said, look, here's the last chapters except for uh, the final chapter, because, hey, let's see what happens with these Georgia Senate races. And uh, on Wednesday is going to be the certification of the vote. It's probably going to be a lot of political theater, but we have to account for it. 
And then uh, I thought I might speak to Biden for it, uh, for the book that first week in January. I ended up speaking to him for the book, but it wasn't until the beginning of February. And so the last 50 pages of the book were not uh, even planned until after it was supposed to be done, uh, which I'm sure you can, uh, from your own book writing experiences, recount how, how odd that is as a situation to be in. But uh, that meant that we had to let go some of the other material. Uh, and really? I don't, Cutting yeah. room floor? I thought books, okay. the glory of books is that you can just keep on making them longer. The original conception of the book did not, which I started working on in 2018, it did not account for 2020 being quite as crazy a year as it was. Um, I thought that the craziness would kind of uh, taper off after the nomination process was done. Uh, and at most, maybe there'd be a long fight for the, the nomination between two or maybe three people. Uh, I obviously didn't anticipate the pandemic or any of the, what that brought or any of the George Floyd aftermath um, or even uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg dying six weeks before the election and the Supreme Court confirmation being in the middle of this. Uh, so uh, I, I think that there's probably a version of this book that could have been a thousand pages long, but 500 seemed like enough to, to keep people going. <laughs> well, uh, I, I have to say it is staggering how much is in the book like you you feel almost like an omniscient narrator uh which is uh, you know insane given that you're talking about conversations that are had uh between candidates and their staff i, I was blown away by the level of, of detail but i want to rewind a little bit so people have a sense of who you are and how you came mm -hmm. to 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 have the capacity to write this kind of book. So here's what I know. You ran for student body president in New York City. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And lost to your former campaign manager, Chris Coffey. That's true. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and then you became a, a high-level New York journalist and then became a high-level DC journalist. Uh, you and I met when you were covering the presidential race uh, in Iowa and then New Hampshire. Uh, but how the heck does someone become you? Like, it seems impossible. And I now know enough to know that there are only a very small handful of political journalists with your level of stature and access uh, and authority. Uh, if, if people want to find your writings, uh, I associate you with The Atlantic, most of all. Uh, that, that's where I, I find most of your stuff. Um, but how how... How did your own path evolve? I mean, you were clearly somewhat into politics from when you were young. Yeah, uh, well, uh, first of all, it's nice of what, uh, to say what you did. Uh, the path is sort of a weird one. I was always interested in writing uh, and found it appealing. I was always interested in politics, uh, but uh, it, it more as sort of like a thing that I paid attention to. Um, I was never much of a sports fan, so... It was politics instead, um, which I guess uh, certifies me as a, a nerd um, in a deep way. <laughs> um, and I never put the two pieces of it together, even though I was uh, in high school and college doing stuff like working on the school newspaper and that sort of stuff and, and interning in the Senate um, uh, and in the House uh, for my local congressman. Um, it was Jerry Nadler, who's still there, um, and interned opening mail uh, for uh, Pat Moynihan when he was his last year in the Senate. Uh, and then uh, through a roundabout way, someone said to me, hey, uh, I know uh, someone at the Hill newspaper, uh, which is still around now, but it's a very different thing from what it was then. It used to come out once a week. Um, this was uh, the spring of 2000, this conversation happened. Uh, and uh, the person said, would you be interested? You're doing all this stuff on like campus journalism. Would you be interested in going to work there? And you could uh, do some stuff about politics. And I said, sure. Uh, mostly because it was already probably March or April of that year. And I had not figured out my summer plans. Um, I got a very helpful grant from uh, where I was in school at Johns Hopkins to pay for me to have an unpaid internship. Um, they basically gave me the money that I would earn if I had had a job. And I went to work there in 2000. Uh, and again, it came out once a week um, and I threw myself into whatever I could. Uh, and 
at the end of the summer was the were the two conventions. And that year it was the Republicans in Philadelphia and the Democrats in Los Angeles. And I said, would you let me go cover them? And they said, sure, if you pay for it. <laughs> and so um, I did not go to Los Angeles, uh, but I could figure out how to take the train back and forth between Philadelphia. Uh, and I was still living in Baltimore for, uh, I had my apartment from Hopkins. Uh, and so they got me passes to go and it was a really fun time and a lot of really cool coverage. And I got to like interview uh bob dole at one point and uh and henry kissinger and I, there was a not a it was like a protest that got a little dicey but not very dicey at all uh outside uh not outside the convention that were more in center city philadelphia i covered that and it was so much fun that i went back and i interned there the next year um again at the hill um and that then they kind of gave me my own beat to do uh and because who comes back and does an unpaid internship two years in a row um and you do Isaac O'Mara does <laughs> I guess so uh and then I um again this certifies me even more as a nerd everyone that I knew in grad in college was applying to graduate school so I had the peer pressure to apply to PhD programs and I got into none of them but I got instead I got into a a master's program, the PhD program rejected me and sent my info to this master's program. This was all at the University of Chicago for a program that was supposed to be like, okay, this will get you more ready to be in a PhD program. And when I did that for a year, um, and it was the year, it was 02 to 03. Uh, and uh, it was after September 11th, it was when we were sort of building up to go invade Iraq. And it was really jarring to me to be so far in academia and not in what was going on and the world was churning. And I grew up in New York and thinking about all this stuff. Um, it just felt weird to be away from it. So I almost dropped out of that program, but it was a one-year program and I'd already paid. So I decided to stick with it, moved back to New York and then got involved in community journalism, uh, covering community boards and, uh, and uh, local races, city council races, um, surrogate court races in 2005. Um, and then, uh, in 2006, the president of the company that I was working for said, Hey, I had this crazy idea a couple of years ago to start a publication that would just be like the Hill, but about New York politics. Uh, would you want to do it? And I said, sure. Um, and I don't think he was really taking it seriously, but I brought him a plan a month later for how to do it. So the big lesson here is if somebody says to you, would you ever want to do this and show up with a plan? Um, and cause when I did, he said to me, okay, let's try it. And so it was called city hall. And we did that, uh, it came out once a month. Eventually it was twice a month. Uh, after about a year and a half, we started a companion one that was called the Capitol, which was about state politics. And I did that through 2011. And then, uh, Politico at that point was doing a bunch of recruiting out of New York and they recruited me and I moved to Washington to, cover uh, national politics, started out as an editor at Politico, but moved back into reporting relatively quickly, covered the Obama White House uh, through the second term, uh, was covering it, expecting that Hillary Clinton was going to be the president, as I think most people were, including Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Uh, and uh, uh, a lot of plans changed after election night 2016. I stayed at Politico for about a um, year and a half after that, um, covering more national politics, not wanting to cover the Trump White House because I wanted to cover the bigger things that were happening in politics, uh, which were already clear to me were pretty significant, and then moved over to the Atlantic in the fall of 2018 and have been there since and wrote this book along the way. I feel like the Atlantic, uh, the schedule must be very different because I feel like, like how often do you produce something for the Atlantic? Whereas the Politico, I feel like there's like a, there, there must've been a, a lot more like of a rhythmic cadence where it's like, all right, gotta, gotta do this, gotta do that. Whereas I feel like Atlantic lets you bake things. Is that correct? I'm not sure. If yeah. I mean, I think it depends on the situation. And I think obviously in the heat of the presidential campaign, uh, news was happening much more quickly for the campaign. And now, uh, it's not as much. Uh, and, uh, and so some of the things that I've done recently, there's a piece I wrote on you, uh, about uh, your mayoral candidacy that ended up baking actually a little bit longer than we were expecting to, but that was like a 
three week turnaround. And then there are things that also still sometimes uh, there's something I wrote actually also about New York politics uh, in March when uh, there was that rush of a time it seemed like Andrew Cuomo was going to have to resign. Everybody was thinking that. And it became clear to me from conversations that I was having, he was not going to resign. He was not going anywhere. And I wrote a piece that was on a very, very fast turnaround uh, for that. And I think that went up 16 hours after I had first conceived of it. So, uh, but even that, sometimes in Politico, there would be, you did have to learn at Politico to have something happen and then have it be on the website, maybe 90 minutes later at most, um, sometimes 10 minutes later. That's my feeling. I feel like Politico is very responsive and they do some other stuff too. Whereas uh, I, I feel like uh, the Atlantic, the time frame is a little longer. So it sounds like you went to the Atlantic around 2018. And is that when the thinking around this book also ca- came to, to pass? When did you know this book was going to exist? So I wrote an article for Politico magazine uh, that published the day before Trump's inauguration. That the, the headline on it was uh, Democrats in the Wilderness. And it was, okay, that was a disaster for the Democrats. Uh, what happens now? What's the possible path back? And obviously there were a lot of people asking that question. Uh, and, and the answer was clearly Andrew Yang, Isaac. Why, why, mean, did that, why was that not at the, the, the <laughs> forefront of that article? In January 2017. In there, there's some conversation about like, what do we do about the economy and the changing economy? And, and uh, like, how do, you, how do Democrats address that in a way? Things that, in the end, obviously, gave you space for your ideas to be resonant with people um, were there. Um, the other thing that I think was there, and as it relates to your campaign, and I'm not saying this just because I'm talking to you, but um, there, there was this question of authenticity, which was a real weird one when Donald Trump is obviously not like the man of the people. He uh, has lived a life that uh, has been very cloistered and uh, it's not within an ivory tower, it's within a golden tower, right? Uh, and he, uh, but people felt like he was authentic, like he really said what he meant. Uh, and Democrats were really struggling with that, what that looks like. And I, I think that part of what, made your candidacy appealing. And by the way, like Pete Buttigieg's candidacy appealing was the sense that like, well, what if people just kind of said what they were thinking and were more who they were, even if it doesn't fit at all the mold of what a presidential candidate should look like, right? Um, And that played out in different ways too. Better O'Rourke was a good example of that. Obviously uh, not as successful uh, in uh, the presidential campaign as he uh, and others thought he was going to be. Uh, but to, to come back to it, uh, so, so I wrote that article and publishes in January 2017. It, it sparked a lot of interest from a lot of people, a lot of forlorn <laughs> Democrats mostly. Uh, and uh, I spoke with a couple of book agents about it. And originally there was a conception that I should write a book where the uh, Trump's election was almost the end of it. Um, that's like how, how it got to such a bad place for Democrats. And I was pushing back on that because I said, look, I'm a journalist. Like, I don't think I want to write just like a book that will end so far in the past, right? Uh, Even if it had come out two years ago, Uh, it seemed to me more about figuring out how to cover what was going on, and the the craziness that was happening. And I bounced around a couple of ways to do it. And finally, in the spring of 2018, uh, in about March, I said to my book agent, you know, um, this book proposal that we've worked on, I think it's its not really interesting to me to read it, let alone to write the book that would be based off of it. Um, <laughs> well, that's a sign you should definitely switch gears. Right. And she said, well, what do you think? And I said, well, look, I think that you're going to have uh, a lot of people running for president on the Democratic side. And it seems to me like there's going to be representation of a lot of different elements of the campaign, uh, of what's going on in the party within the campaign. And so you'll have like the progressives with Sanders and Warren, or, and by the way, at that point, I think most people, including me, assumed that it would only be one of them running, um, that you'd have uh, Biden probably running. And that's the more traditional thing. You'd have uh, a bunch of women running, you'd have a bunch of people of color running, you know, and all these different things that would be the way to tell the story of what was happening in the party would not be just this dry 
sort of like policy recounting, but tell it through these people, right? Tell about like what it is to run for president and how, and do these ideas connect with people and which one wins out. And so I signed the book contract in the summer of 2018. It was before I moved over to the Atlantic, but by the time that I moved over to the, by the time that I was having the conversations with them about moving over, I knew that the book was happening and then they knew it was happening and they knew that part of the deal was going to be that I, uh, I would be working on the book and doing some reporting that would be only for the book. And I think the balance worked out pretty well. And the book reads, I hope, like a lot of things that you don't know uh, happened over this time, even if you were following it closely. And some of that is because I was saving it along the way uh, and doing what we call in journalism embargoed interviews, where I would say, including to you, uh, okay, I'm not going to use this until spring of 2021. What are you really thinking right now? Um, But also, uh, I spent a lot of last year pulling the reporting apart and going back over it and then finding out a lot of new details. As a candidate, I can tell you that the spring of 2021 just seemed like such an eternity away. Be like, sure. <laughs> I mean, I remember you and I were after the debate in Atlanta, which was in November of 2019. We rode, I'm sure you don't really remember this because you were probably in a delirium of, uh, of debate tonight, but we rode from the debate site to an election or a debate night watch party that you uh, where some of your supporters uh, had thrown and you showed up there. And I said to you, okay, so this recording, I'm not using any of it until it comes out. And you were like, okay. <laughs> yeah, totally. If it's after the election at the time, you're like, whatever, man. Like, you know. <laughs> and now I'm like, curses. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, so that, that must have been quite a process for you because you thought, okay. I'm going to be gathering all this information and a lot of it's not going to see the light of day until afterwards. Um, It feels like this is the first major work to come out that documents the 2020 democratic field. Um, And I learned a lot reading this and I obviously was fairly well attuned to a lot of it (laughs) being one of the candidates. And even I was like, what? Um, where, where, Where some of the conversations, again, it's really impressive how, uh, thoroughly sourced this stuff is where you you seem somehow privy to uh, conversations uh, between candidate and candidate, uh, between candidate and their team. Um, certainly uh, some of it I, I know is because you're in touch with people who are affiliated with a whole variety of candidates. So watching the field take shape, I knew that it was going to be very, very fragmented even when I was planning my run. In 17, I I was like, look, you had maybe a dozen Republican candidates uh, the last time where it was like an open field. I said, it's gonna be more like 20. (laughs) You were better than I was because I, when I thought it would be a way to tell the story through the candidates, my my ballpark was 16. Then we ended up with 26. These are, behind me is uh, all of the buttons from all the primary candidates. Um, There's 26 buttons in there. And I should say that this, this is yours. And that button I picked up uh, on my first reporting trip, really, for the 2020 race, which was uh, a dinner, the uh, Iowa Democrats dinner in October of 2018. Uh, Cory Booker spoke there. You did not come, but you, there was a table that was being worked by some of your... Uh, Young staffers. I, I, think Carly, yeah. I think Carly Riley was there. Yes, Carly was there. And, and uh, there was a table for you and there was a table for Delaney. And those were the only two tables. Now, of course, that dinner a year later was like in an arena with a smoke machine on the stage, <laughs> and, you know, a, a production that had 15,000 people there or something. Um, but uh, that event, I thought that was the first time that I was like, oh, he, like this guy who's been making noise about running for president actually has people who are here supporting him and I grabbed that button that is that's vintage that button from that is uh, a very <laughs> impressive display you have there the fact that you track down a button from each candidate is really impressive you had to probably work for a couple of them it ends with a Biden and Harris button because I felt like it's all building to it and that's yeah, my no, ticket from the inauguration so This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. 
I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm gonna do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So the, the book is chock full of revelations, big and small. Um, but I, I'm going to, to turn it to you. What were the things that you found while you were covering the race where you said, ooh, I'm going to keep that for the book? even though I kind of am tempted to share it with people now, like what, what were like the surprises that you saw um, that, that uh, you kind of held for publication that everyone would have been excited about at the time? Uh, well, again, some of this I knew because I knew it and held on to it. And some of it I only found out about early out because I was reporting it on the, these embargo rules. Uh, and I think the best example is one of the very first things that I got that I knew would end up in the book uh, was the scene that's in there of Kamala Harris uh, deciding to run for president. Uh, and it's a meeting that she has in New York uh, with all of her campaign team and her, uh, her sister, uh, who's her closest advisor uh, and brother-in-law there. Uh, and they go through the presentations about uh, fundraising and the schedule and how it's all going to go. And, uh, and that's interesting in itself, but the moment I just knew would be great to have is she, it ends with a moot court because Harris really is like a lawyer deep in how she thinks about things. Uh, and so they have Mark Elias, who's the democratic lawyer, does a lot of election law challenges. He does the, uh, case for running. And uh, he does this whole big speech, which ends with him saying, the house of our democracy is on fire and we need you to be there. Okay. Um, then they turn to Tony West, uh, Harris's brother-in-law, to do the case against running. Uh, and because he's family, they figure he can go at her pretty hard. And he does and says she hasn't been in the Senate for long enough. And uh, she, uh, she was, all these things she did as a prosecutor were terrible. They were a betrayal of black people and they were betrayal of progressives and blah, 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 blah. All things that ended up being real factors during the campaign for her. And he hits her hard and they're all sitting there thinking like, oh shit. <laughs> glad, glad he, uh, as the brother-in-law raised all this. And, uh, and she looks at him and she goes, yeah. I like some motherfuckers up. Uh, and uh, as I point out in the book, she is now Vice President Harris. Motherfucker is like her favorite word. And she will cor correct people if they put the R's into it. Uh, so uh, that's how she said it. And what as I was watching the attacks go on about her record as a prosecutor, of course, as a reporter, you want to say, like, hey, I have this super juicy thing. And this is how she talked about it. And this is how she dismissed it. But I couldn't use it. Uh, I'm glad that it was there for the book um, because I think it's interesting even in retrospect. Uh, and uh, and so that that really was, again, that was, I, I had a separate notebook that I was keeping of stuff that was for the book. And that was in the notebook by January of 2019 um, wow. in full. Um, and the whole scene of it. Um, uh, and I, parts of it were in earlier. Uh, 
there were other things too uh, that uh, that really surprised me. I mean, I think one of the ones, and because it ended up being so relevant, also kind of relates to the vice presidential process. But knowing just how uh, rough and vicious things got between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, and then knowing the story that's in the book of how Warren, once she decides to drop out, is stressing about what to do with her endorsement with the idea that she wants Bernie Sanders to not be the nominee and she wants Joe Biden to be the nominee at that point. And whether for her, the right calculated move is to endorse Sanders so that she can have the credibility to then call on him to drop out a week or two later, or whether it's to endorse Biden um, so that she can give him the progressive boost. Uh, and in the end, she didn't endorse anybody. She just didn't made no decision, uh, but she's having these like, conversations with her staff, with other people, with Barack Obama. It's all going on. But when it comes time for the uh, Biden to think about a vice presidential nominee, Warren really wants it. And what would have really helped her at that moment is Bernie Sanders saying, hey, I think you should consider Elizabeth. It would mean a big deal, a great deal to me, to my supporters would be uh, a way to draw everybody in. And Sanders is so pissed about everything that went on that he won't say it and he won't say, he won't even bring up her name. Um, and he kept on saying, Oh, we're, you know, when he was talking to Biden and they were talking a fair amount, um, he, he, he would say, Oh, well, we're not, I don't bring up the vice presidential stuff. And that's, that was his uh, way of not uh, saying anything good or bad about Warren. Cause he didn't want to trash her, um, but he could have helped her and he decided not to. And maybe she would have been the vice presidential nominee otherwise. There were some other concerns the Biden team had, including that she would make, she would sort of reinforce the idea that Biden looked old. Uh, but um, uh, that, especially, in, and that stuff I started to really get a sense of uh, during the vice presidential selection process. So that was over the summer, I was doing some reporting and people would send me, I can tell you this part, but you can't use this until later. The Bernie Warren interplay was fascinating in your book. Like that, there was a real blow by blow, even in the beginning when they're each deciding to run and they're taking each other's temperature. <laughs> like that, that sounds fascinating. And I've obviously been around both of them, you know, like a, a dozen times. Uh, I've seen them interact with each other. Would you describe times. them as friendly? They just, they're very cordial, very cordial colleagues. Uh, you know that they're uh, you know like like there's definitely a high degree of familiarity. Um, I, I feel like the the warmth um, you know might have uh, gone up and down over the time. Like no, but what you're getting at it like that's it, right? And the chapter in the book is called "Not Friends," the first chapter about Warren and Sanders, right? Like because they're not. You'd think that they maybe are, but they're not. Um, and they're like gaming each other out over the course of 2018 to see which one was going to run for president. Uh, ultimately. <laughs> deciding, I don't care, I'm running. I don't care what he does or I don't care what she does, I'm running. Uh, you know, it, it comes to a head in a way at this uh, dinner that Warren invites Sanders over to her apartment in Washington. Uh, and like one of the funny details in the book to me is that Sanders afterwards uh, would tell people that Warren cooked for him. And Warren <laughs> ordered in Italian. He said, oh, she made lasagna for me. <laughs> and like, that was a much more significant thing that happened at that dinner. That's the dinner where people may remember it blew up later that uh, Warren heard him say, basically, he didn't think a woman could win. Um, he says that what he said about it was that he was saying it would be hard for a woman to run and win. Uh, but even just at the deep details of it, of uh, like how these people relate to each other. And Warren doesn't, she's not much of a cook. Um, so, <laughs> but Sanders is assuming, oh, this Italian food that's here, she must've made it for me. <laughs> it, it was wild for me, Isaac, because like the first couple of times I was around various candidates, like there were different levels of uh, receptivity to me where uh, mm -hmm. initially they just didn't know who I was <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, like that happened, you know, but, but then uh, like over time they became familiar with me and, and uh, you know, there's like a, a degree of um, collegiality that, that would get built up. Um, 
But that, I remember the first time I met Elizabeth Warren, I was in a room. And when you're a candidate, there are certain levels of energy around you where like you come in a room and then people really want to talk to you. Uh, and so the, the first time I was in the same room as Elizabeth Warren was like a fairly big democratic event in, in one of the states. I think it might have been um, South Carolina. And then the, like all, all these people like flocked to her because she was Elizabeth Warren and a big deal. And at the time I was not a big deal. Um, uh, and, uh, so candidates would like bigfoot each other all the time that way, not, not intentionally necessarily, like, you know, <laughs> they just right. come in and everyone here cared. Um, and so like the first time I was around Elizabeth, uh, she didn't really have, have much, uh, said of who I was. And I, I think it was really only after the debate started getting going that, that, that they would start to, um, pick up on who some of the other candidates were, um, but, uh, you know, the watching people interact with each other was fascinating for me, like it was for everyone else, uh, where you'd, you'd see something going on in the press and then you'd see the people interact individually. Uh, <laughs> well, I feel like for you, you had this this strange experience where you didn't know any of these people beforehand. So you were sort of like a spectator of like getting to know all these people like a lot of America was. But on the other hand, you were there. You were on the debate stage. You were in backstage at these events. You were because your candidacy was starting to pull together. And uh, certainly, I mean, like when it became, the moment when it became clear to me that you were going to be something that was a significant part of the race was the debate in Detroit, the second debate, um, when, uh, I'm gonna get your exact phrasing wrong, but you, there was a question about climate change and you said, well, maybe we need to consider moving to higher ground, right? Which was this very, uh, in some ways, dark, um, nihilistic way of looking at things, but also very practical minded because your point was we, we spend a lot of time talking about climate change and like we're talking and talking and talking and the climate keeps changing, right? Uh, and I think that the reaction that that generated to me uh, was really fascinating. Um, and uh, and I, it, but it still, I think for a lot of the other candidates, you were not, it, it took a little bit longer for them to plug into the fact that you were, this was something that was really going to catch. Um, and, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, talking to you along the way, talking to you for, as we did a little bit for the book, um, I, I just think your perspective on it is, it, it's almost like uh, what it would have been if I could have been backstage, <laughs> except, you know, uh, because, because you had that detention, you know, like, I think when I Corey was a lay, Booker I was, was the lay person. It's true. I was a lay person yeah. being like, yeah, hey, this is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and you would get these fresh reactions, you know, like there, there's uh, a bunch of moments in the book. Where you see the people relating to each other, but they all know each other already. And they, they kind of know uh, what they like about each other and what they don't like about each other. Uh, and, uh, and to you, you could see them all for the, you know, getting the first impression of them. And I think that that, uh, it's, it's fascinating to me that what you were able to see of them and, and, uh, and I know it was frustrating to a lot of them to see you take off in the way that they, they that you did well, and that they didn't. Well, that, well, that, well, there were always like that. There was like a running joke where, um, you know, it's all fun and games until Andrew Yang passes you in the polls. It was like all of like all of like the, the, the you know the candidates that were struggling to stay on stage. Um, right. You know, I, I think I think my campaign was uh, a source of frustration uh, to some of them and their teams. Um, the the people that were uh, true contenders. What was funny is I, that Detroit debate. I had a bit of a back and forth with Elizabeth Warren about automation versus mm-hmm. um, versus regulation uh, on on. Um, the loss of manufacturing jobs in Detroit. And, you know, I'd spent right. a lot of time in Detroit, but like the, the contenders wanted absolutely nothing to do with me where it's like that in the sense that it's like, anytime I spend having exchanges with Andrew Yang is like lost time. <laughs> yeah. But you know, what was it? And, and I, Medicare for all plays a pretty significant role in the book just because I, I, it became this defining thing in the race. But now I've said this to other people uh, along the way, uh, it, Every single debate, the first 20 to 40 minutes of it were about Medicare for all. And I don't think anybody could ever really understand what anyone was talking about. It was only when it would go to the other topics that it seemed like you were actually getting a debate. You were seeing what candidates were and what they believed in. I personally believe as a political reporter, you know, you, look, everybody spends a lot of time in, in 
debate prep. That's part of running for president. Even you did as a new candidate, right? Uh, and so you get used to what uh, what might come up and you think about what's the smartest way to say it or the, you know, the suavest way to say it. Uh, and for me as a political reporter, what I'm always interested in is how do people respond when you throw a question at them that they're not expecting at all? Like, how do you see the thought process? Um, and I think especially for president, because uh, so much of the job of being president is things that you could have never anticipated. And so what I think people should really think about when they're deciding, certainly within a primary, is watch the way these people think. Which thought process, which approach to this uh, do, is appealing to you? Because that's what you're going to get. That's what you're buying when the, the time comes. Yes, I think that's one reason why people were attracted to me in my campaign is they like the process. They liked and the fact that half the time I actually was answering with an original thought because I had not figured out what the uh, politically honed answer was. <laughs> right. And no, I mean, I, I mean, I do think that that's what it was. I think that you see the people who were, you know, all everybody always spends a lot of time in debate prep, and it's so obvious almost all the time to the reporters and to the voters uh, that. These are the prepared responses. And these are the lines. Uh, and occasionally one slips through that seems authentic uh, and, uh, but isn't really. Uh, usually it's like a choreographed event and that's less interesting to people. And I, I, I wonder how much the takeaway from what happened in the 2020 process and who was interesting to people uh, as candidates, you included, again, uh, not just you, but you were one of them, uh, who, who was not spending as much time thinking through every response so that every time it seemed boring and then people kind of zoned out. Now, obviously it didn't work out for you in the end. So maybe, you know, Joe Biden, who spent a lot of time in debate prep, uh, but not rehearsing answers in quite the same way that some of the other candidates do, uh, Maybe, maybe the lesson is to not do it your way. But uh, certainly for people who want to jump forward and be factors in the race, you and, and I think your campaign and Buttigieg's campaign are the ones that were most successful in doing things in a very different way from what anybody ever would have thought possible. I'm going to tell you a debate prep story that might entertain you, Isaac. It probably right. will. So I, I do, this is going to make me sad that I don't have it in the book. Probably the people who were preparing me were like, Hey, you, you keep answering the question. You can't spend too much time answering the question and it's not what you want to do. And cause my natural impulse is to answer the question. You ask me a question, yeah. I answer it. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I said, well, uh, no, like, I feel like if I don't answer the question, it's kind of a problem. Um, and people can tell that and they were like, no, 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 that's not right. And so what, what they did was they, they had me listen to Bernie Sanders answer a question um, without answering the question. Um, and it was about something like sex ed, I don't know, like, like in, in, in schools. And then, so they, they had me watch him uh, answer with a non-answer. And I was like, oh my gosh, like he, he like, and, and that's, that's when the light bulb went off for me it was when Bernie like answered with a non-answer and like what, you know, went, went to the direction his talk, filled up the time. And you know, that, like that, that was uh, the, the end of it. Uh, so that was like a, a real uh, learning moment for me uh, in debate prep where I, I realized what the, um, the right approach is for a lot of prepared candidates, which is you don't want to answer the question nine times out of 10. Yeah. Uh, and and despite this coaching, like I still try to answer the question, <laughs> like, like, like uh, but I, I had a much you, more get you into trouble. Right. I mean, it's like high risk, high reward. Right. Um, because sometimes you uh, not you generally, sometimes you say things that have gotten you into trouble. Right. Um, that like the phrasing is not exactly the right one. And the, I guess the most recent one with the mayoral campaign was when uh, you were asked about homelessness and you said the comment about mental health that got some people riled up. I think that that uh, probably if you'd done that a bunch of times in debate prep, your campaign aides would have told you not to say it that way. Uh, but also a lot of things that worked out for you on the campaign uh, were things that probably more experienced campaign aides would have told you not to do. 
Yes, I believe you're right. So the so in, in your book, I think some of the most fascinating stuff really is the interplay between people that we all know well, uh, like uh, like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie. Uh, or Obama and Bernie, like, holy cow, like that, that stuff. I was like, <laughs> you know, like, you know, like, wow. Um, I, I hadn't really reckoned with the fact that uh, a lot of folks thought that Bernie and it, it, I guess it, it is true, but like Bernie, Bernie sticking around in 2016 may have contributed to uh, Trump defeating Hillary. Uh, I think most people who know me well know, like I, I was a burner in 2016. I'm uh, supporter's campaign. <laughs> You know, no, but uh, I mean, I'm not sure about the timing. Like, you know, yeah. it's like, I, I don't know if he should have uh, folded up quicker, but it was fascinating to me that Obama seemed to be like very, very like uh, after Bernie in terms of the timing of his campaign this time around and that he'd invested a lot of energy trying to build that kind of relationship. Yeah, I, I think Obama has this role throughout the book of uh, sort of being in a spot that where a lot of Democrats were at each point of these moments, right? Uh, and he thinks the book starts on election night 2016 with Obama and Biden watching the uh, results as Trump is winning and trying to reckon with it. Uh, and up till that point, Obama hadn't really wrapped his head around the fact that Trump could win. But he is in the final days of campaigning thinking, what's going on? And he had already been a little bit um, struck by uh, that Clinton wasn't a good campaigner in, in his mind and that she, uh, no matter what happens, the bad stuff uh, seems to stick to her and nothing, none of it was sticking to Trump. So he's concerned about that. But then he does say, I didn't, I, I think Bernie hurt her more than we realized, um, which maybe is his rationalization of it. Uh, but I think a lot of people share that. Uh, what I think Obama does pretty importantly is when he starts to think about the role that he's going to have out of office for the Democratic Party, which is to be more involved than he ever seemed like he was to most people. Um, that one of his big missions has to be to make sure that Bernie Sanders feels more a part of things than he did in 2016. And Obama does that very basic way. He starts inviting him in for meetings and uh, phone calls and they talk and they get to know each other. Uh, there's a phone call uh, that's uh, recounted in the book of uh, the, when Obama first called Sanders in 2016 and told him to drop out. He was on the golf course in Florida between putts and he called and he was like, you gotta drop out, it's time. Uh, to go from that to inviting him to sit in the office and spend time there and go through and talk about lots of things back and forth uh, that's a big change. And that has a lot to do, I think, with why Sanders approached this candidacy differently in, in 2016 uh, and, uh, and, oh, sorry, 2016 to 2020. And why, when it came down to, wind, when it came time to wind down the campaign in 2020, that Obama was able to step in at that point and talk to Sanders and say, listen, Bernie, like we got to figure out how to end this. Help, help me figure out how, what I can do to help get you there. And Sanders is really receptive to that and they work things out. Uh, but, um, but that's because of the, the time that Obama put in to building that relationship up. Yeah, it's, it's impressive to me that he made that commitment well ahead of time that it wasn't like a last minute um, call. And uh, I had my call with Obama, though that was uh, after the fact. <laughs> there wasn't like a, hey, do you think I should run? You were one of the few people that he didn't talk to about getting into the race because um, much like other Democrats, he would not have thought to uh, speak to you beforehand. But then, yeah. I mean, I think that's the point, right? Is that like, you made an impression on a lot of people and by the end of it, then he does want to talk to you. So your book definitely paints a very, very much more thorough and complete picture of uh, what's going on with the candidates and the campaigns and anything that has existed heretofore, certainly, because, you know, this is relatively recent history. Um, and so anyone who was 
uh, wrapped up in this race. Uh, this is definitely required reading battle for the soul. I got to say when, when um, Joe, Joe and I like interacted any number of times and for whatever reason, he and I spoke after or before each other at a bunch of events and Joe would always go to this battle for the soul narrative. And uh, I wasn't really that into it at the time. I was like battle for the soul. Like what the heck does that even mean? <laughs> like I, a lot of people. It's interesting because um, he, so that's a phrase that he starts saying after Charlottesville in 2017, he writes an essay actually for the Atlantic that that's in there. Uh, and, uh, and okay, people were like, yeah, sure, whatever. And then he kept saying it. And then uh, I remember when he got into the race in 2019, and it's uh, <laughs> a little behind the scenes of how things work for most campaigns, not yours, because yours wasn't put together in the same way, but uh, most of the people who you would think would run, the reporters would get a call a day or two before, like, okay, guess what? Um, I'm calling because tomorrow morning, we're, like, just to get you ready. And it would be the presser. And okay, like, what's it? And they would give you the, the talking points. Here are the themes of the campaign. The funny thing for me is that I had broken the story that Biden was going to run about a week and a half before he was officially announcing. And so then I got that call from someone on his staff uh, the day before he was announcing. And I said, oh, yeah, I heard that he was going to run. <laughs> and uh the person on the phone said to me, and so um, the themes were going to be built around. The first one is the battle for the soul of this nation. And I said, okay, you know, no, no. Um, it seems cliche at that point. And then, you know, I know from re reporting for this book that they would do focus groups on it. And people said, what are you talking about? It doesn't make any sense. Uh, and when I, uh, the book ends with this interview that I did with Biden. Uh, it's it very touching. President. Yeah. 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 The, the it's a very touching interview. Um, it was, uh, I mean, I, the, <laughs> like I said, the book was, uh, the, the last 50 pages of the book were not expected to be there until after it was supposed to be done. And we, we spoke uh, on February 2nd. It's the end of the book in part because the rest of the book was already like getting fully edited at that point and copy edited and everything. And so it had to be the last thing, but it really worked out uh, in a, sort of poetic way that the book is in some ways the story of how Joe Biden ended up in the Oval Office and it ends with Joe Biden in the Oval Office. And we had this conversation that, I mean, look, you've talked to him and a bunch of things. He's a different person when you ask him like, okay, what do you think the pay-fors are going to be about the infrastructure deal? He'll give you one thing. But if you actually talk to him on a human level, you get a much different person and a much deeper person. Uh, and we were, there was like a little chit chat at the beginning of the interview. And I said to him, um, uh, so what's it like being in the Oval Office every day and waking up upstairs? And he says to me, uh, well, you know, I was in the Oval basically every day for eight years when Obama was president and, uh, and I've been here a lot. So that's not it. Waking up upstairs, uh, it's, you know, there's some days where I can't even find my clothes. Nobody told me the moving was going to be part of this, man. And because I'm a smart ass, what I immediately responded was, uh, well, you're the one who wanted this job. <laughs> and, and, he, uh, and he said to me, yeah, you know, someone said to me, I'm like the dog that caught the car after all this. And I, I said, no, I'm the dog that caught the bus. Um, and then uh, he was starting to kind of go deeper in that. And Joe Biden can wander off in directions of, you know, tangents of conversation sometimes. And he knows me from covering him and I know him, uh, but I knew that now he's the president and now there's a ticking clock. <laughs> um, and so I only had so much time for this interview. And so I steered him back to it. And I said, so for this book that I'm working on, uh, <laughs> like, remember, Mr. President, this is why we're talking. Um, uh, we just, we were playing around with a bunch of titles through the very end. We just landed on, it's going to be called Battle for the Soul. So that's, you know, from you. Uh, and he said to me, yeah, you know, the difference between you and me, pal, is I actually believe it. Uh, <laughs> and I said, no, I think you, you were actually onto something. Uh, I don't think when he got into the race, he could have anticipated anything like what his presidency is at this point. Um, and all of these crises that are part of it. Uh, but um, it does feel like between 
the pandemic and the economic crisis and the racial reckoning and the, the crisis of democracy that we're in, it, it is. It's a question of what America is going to be. And, and oh, this, he was right. I mean, I, I could have, you know, like I, I, I was uh, dubious in real time, but, you know, the, the man won and is president and thank goodness for it. You know, like even as someone who ran, I feel like the people chose correctly uh, <laughs> that it was, you know, that we needed to be Joe to beat Trump, uh, yeah. needed to be Joe to be president. Um, so, again, this book required reading for anyone who's uh, who's into politics and certainly anyone who's touching the 2020 race. Um, my, my question now for you is kind of forward looking, like as someone who spent more time with the, the, these people um, than just about anyone, like what, and I'm enjoying the Biden administration, let me say, like I, I, I think that got a lot of great stuff done, and, you know, hopefully this infrastructure package comes together and a bunch of other things happen. Um, but what do you think moving forward, like the Democrats came out of the wilderness and managed to beat Trump, like, you know, fantastic. And I'm not sure if the Republicans are in the wilderness the same way. You could definitely argue yes. You could argue that there's still Trump's party, that it may... Like someone asked me the other day what's going to happen in 2024. And then the first thing I said was uh, Biden-Trump too. Like, mm -hmm. like that. that's the first thing that came into my mind was like, it, it's just going to be a rematch. And they looked at me kind of aghast when I said this. <laughs> and, <laughs> but, but then I said, it's like, why would Trump not run again? Uh, and if, you know, if he's up for it and then why would Joe not run again if he's up for it? So I, anyway, that, that, that was the first thing that I said when someone asked me, um, do you, so not to necessarily say you have to prognosticate that far uh, ahead in terms of 24, but what do you see coming down the pike as someone who's been cataloging, uh, this process? Well, like the great lesson from 2016 for me as a reporter is don't try to predict what's going to happen. Uh, so, uh, when I was walking out of the Javits center on election night, uh, leaving Clinton's party to take a train back to DC in the middle of the night to get to the white house, I emailed a bunch of people who worked for Obama in the white house. And the subject line was just, do you have a plan? Uh, and there was nothing in the email and only one of them came back to me and it says, nope. Um, so that's why you don't make predictions. <laughs> uh, I, I don't. I, it's possible that it's going to be Biden versus Trump again. Uh, and I don't know that we're prepared for what that means. Um, but I think that the lesson from the riot and from what has happened since then is that this is still a very ongoing thing. Uh, that this is that people who want to say, okay, like, we, we had the election in November, 2020, and that's, and it was settled. Uh, I think that you see that feeling among uh, certainly a lot of liberals um, that, that like, okay, we like Trump's gone, beat him. Um, that sense has set in in some ways, even as Trump has continued to carry on. That seems very strange to me. Um, and, uh, but likewise, I think for Republicans to look at this and to say, that they know what their party's supposed to be and what it's going to be uh, is like, they have no clue. Uh, it's really possible that, uh, that Trump will be the nominee again, uh, but it's also really possible that it could be someone else and potentially someone who is not so much like Trump. Whoever it is, I think it's some, it will have to have some level of allegiance to Trump if it's not Trump himself. Uh, but the point that I'm making is, I hope that part of the lesson of the last four or five years in this country is that politics matters and government matters and people should get involved and see it as something that really makes a difference in their lives and the lives of people around them. That it's not just a game and it's not just like the way that when I was a kid, I, like I said, it was kind of sports to me. Uh, but that you have to fight for what it is. And I mean, fight not in a violent physical way, but to really be part of it because, and I, I said this a couple of weeks ago on uh, to Seth Meyers, that this is like the end of the first Star Wars movie. Like the Death Star is down, right? Like it was blown up, uh, but they built another Death Star. <laughs> you know, um, that, that, that's do that what happened, in the films. right? Um, uh, and... and and I think that we are going through 
so many changes as a society all at once to think. And again, like I, I'm going to reference your candidacy, but I remember standing at an event you were doing in uh, Southeast Iowa in January of 2020 that 120, 130 people had showed up at, which was more than most of the presidential candidates were getting at that point. Uh, and you were doing your stump speech uh, about uh, that Amazon doesn't pay taxes, that you see these strip malls that are decimated, that uh, automated trucking is coming, and all, all of that. And the way people were plugging into it then as a crisis that was going on knowing it was gnawing at all of us, right? What's happening. And then it's just, and there were other things that that's true. People saying like, why can't I afford my mortgage anymore? Why am I working so hard, right? And, and all of it obviously has been accentuated by the pandemic, right? And, uh, and then other things too, right? Like the, the summer of protests last year after George Floyd was killed, that, it's weird that that woke so many people up, but it did, including like there's a moment in the book where Joe Biden is like woken up by it. Um, and he hears Al Sharpton speaking and Sharpton says, you know, all black people feel a knee on their necks. And Biden says, I'd never thought of it that way before. That's Joe Biden, who has been in public life for basically ever, right? Um, he first starts running for office in 1970. He was the vice president to the first black president. He's done a lot of stuff on civil rights. Uh, and he, it, it, it's all of this that we just have to put together and uh, try to figure out some way through so that the country doesn't come apart. And it's on all of us. It's on the reporters, it's on the politicians, it's on, uh, but it, more than that, it's on the voters to tell us and the people to be voting so that they are voters, what they want it to be. Because I think that uh, sadly for too long in this country, so much was decided by uh, elections in which most people weren't voting. And so most people's uh, uh, voices weren't being heard. And that creates the these problems that were bubbling under the surface that end up exploding and a lot of what I get into in this book. I love it, Isaac. I agree that we have to try to make it so more people are voting. Uh, one of the things I want to do is try and make it easier to vote uh, in, in ways big and small. Um, but certainly there's a lot at stake. Uh, one of the things that I feel is, uh, is that there is like disintegration versus integration. You know, it's like things that are going to tear us apart versus things that are going to pull us together. And the things that are going to tear us apart, in my mind, are getting stronger and clearer. And the things that are going to pull us together are, for the most part, weakening. Like most of the institutions you look up and you say, okay, like, you know, what, like, what, what holds us together? No, like the school board, the PTA, like yeah. my, my place of worship, my block association, you know, like the... Um, my friend group, uh, family ties, whatever it is, like the, the things that would keep us together are not necessarily thriving. Uh, and you know, like, as we're losing them, we're not sure what replaces them. Uh, what One of my goals uh, through my campaign was trying to come up with kind of a new set of connections, but it's you know, like, it's unclear. Uh, so I'm with you, man. Like um, I asked you what comes next and you were like, Hey, no, like it's going to be very, very hard to know because, you know, you're right. Like there, there are a lot of forces at play and who could have predicted uh, where we are now X years ago. Heck, even Andrew Yang, who was like all about it, was like could not have been like, hey, there's going to be this. You know, I mean, I wasn't talking large scale pandemic. I was talking, I was, I was talking about <laughs> Right. Uh, but but right, look, you asked me about when this book started, the proposal that I wrote in 2018 <laughs> says something like uh, th that this is going to be the craziest election ever in 2020 um, and probably the most important in American history. And that was before I knew any of what 2020 itself would hold and how much it ended up playing into things. Uh, and so it also tells, I think, about what, what we're set up for here. What is this Democratic Party that exists? And what does that mean for people who are Democrats? And what does that mean for people who are Republicans? And what does that mean for people who are neither and trying to figure out, okay, well, which one do I vote for? Because I don't want to really be a part of either of them. 
what, is, what does that churn look like? And uh, now, of course, a lot of the story ends up being about what is this interplay between progressives and moderate, whatever that means. I think progressive is a word that we have completely lost track of whatever definition it's going to have. And that's a conversation you and I have had separately. But um, all of that, uh, like the book ends and it's not like, okay, so, uh, you know, roll the credits and that's it. Um, <laughs> everything is fine and, and done and neatly wrapped up. Uh, it ends uh, with this is like, okay, so this is where we are. Now let's see what happens. It ends with Joe Biden talking about the fourth industrial revolution. Uh, which is very much <laughs> he does. Too. Yeah, he does. He does. Um, <laughs> he says, he says to me that if he gets, when he gets out of the white house, that's, he's going to write a book about that. And I didn't at that point want to interrupt him and say, you know, Andrew Yang actually wrote that book. Already. <laughs> I, Joe and I have had half a dozen conversations about the fourth industrial revolution. He's really after it. Um, but I, I was kind of glad that that was one of the notes that he, he ended <laughs> on. Um, congratulations on an awesome, awesome work, uh, Isaac. Um, you know, the, the book, I, it's your first book. It's not going to be your last because I know that, that they're going to, like, people are going to want you to do it again. <laughs> I know you're, you're like, oh, no, doing it again. Um, and, and have people already been in touch with you about the film rights? Is this going to end up like uh, some some uh, like docu series on HBO? Any of that jazz? Um, I, there, there's uh, been a, a couple of conversations, but nothing uh, that's done yet. So we'll see. Hopefully, that'll happen. That'd be great. Um, I do think that um, so much of this election, like we haven't processed yet what happened because it was like just so crazy with Trump. Yeah, all the time Trump, right? Uh, and for most people, that's all that they could take in. And to realize that there was this whole other story that was going on at the same time, um, which I actually think, in, and obviously I wrote a book about it, but in some ways it's more interesting because it was less predictable of how it was going to go. Trump to me always felt like, yeah, he's going to say the craziest thing possible. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, and so, uh, so we'll see, but, uh, I'm certainly no film rights have been sold yet. Uh, hopefully they, they will be and that my film producer friends, you can still get in <laughs> on this. You got to call Isaac. I, I will even agree to play myself. Look at that. Oh, there one, you go. One, it's one easy candidate, <laughs> one candidate already passed. Um, but if you're listening to this or watching this, uh, battle for the soul by Edward Isaac Dover. Uh, masterwork on the 2020 race from the, the Democratic side. Uh, congratulations on this, man. Uh, really, uh, it's a massive achievement. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for having me on. No problem. You can also check out Isaac at The Atlantic. Uh, he's on social media, on Twitter. Uh, but he, he's one of the people I turn to to see what the heck is going on out there in the, in, in the political universe and the real world. Uh, you can trust this man. Um, uh, I do. Thank you.